Um, I was very excited to be able to speak to you guys this morning. Um, when Adam asked me to preach only a couple weeks ago, he gave me the, the four topics. Uh, when we had two weeks ago, we had uh, hope of the pardon, and then last week was hope of peace, and then this week, hope of restoration. I got real excited um, because that gives me an opportunity to dig into Scripture in a unique way because you've got to dissect it completely really far and then bring it back. It's a lot of time to spend in a very short part of Scripture. So it's definitely awesome uh, and encouraging to me. Uh, if you don't know, I'm Dan. I help with the youth, uh, sixth grade. Actually, it's kind of fifth grade now through 12th. Uh, we have a lot of fun here on uh, Wednesday nights. If you see a young person, ask them about it. Uh, they probably have fun or uh, they're lying to you if they say they don't. So we'll, we'll, we'll stick with that. Um, but before we, we dig in, we'll pray and, uh, and we'll, we'll get started here. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your immense love for us. We thank you for your willingness to fix our problems, to fix our sin problem, and to love us so immensely that words can't describe. We pray that you will be here with us today and we will feel your presence and that we will know that you are the one true living God. We pray that you will uh, help the sick right now as sickness is going around, looking for hope in a hopeless world, but they can look to you if they truly can find and, and see you, and they can have hope. And we praise you for that. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so the hope of restoration brings a lot of imagery to my mind, a good memories that I've had with my mother, um, who's probably actually watching the stream right now, um, of watching TV shows where they restore things. You know, people going into these attics, climbing through all these small areas to find this little toy or something that looks like garbage. And then they restore it, they bring it to make something great. You look at it, you're like, wow, that's awesome. And it's worth thousands of dollars because they took the time and the effort to make that. Or watching shows like that they go into this old barn, this is a decrepit, torn down barn, and they take pieces out but the artist sees something there. He sees something and he creates and he builds and he has this masterpiece, some sort of new something or other. You know, it could be a shelving unit, it could be a bench, it could be something, but he took the old, decrepit, nasty, gross and made it awesome. Or, you know, watching shows like the fixer-up car kind of shows where they go out into the abandoned lot, you know, we see over there, they go out there and they pick one of those. And they start restoring it through this long, long, tedious process. And they make it look awesome. You know, I've always wanted to have an old, old, old Bronco and restore it. I don't know where to start. I know that would be very difficult. I don't even know what the, you know, I could get a base of it, pay money, and I would just pour even more and more money into it to try to restore it. But that is something that is really awesome, to be able to restore something from the past, and make it amazing. And we can see that inside of our society today too. You guys probably scroll through social media and you stumble across a video and you don't know why you stop on it. And, I, and I'll, I'm going to pick on somebody here real quick um, without saying any names, Kim. Um, <clears throat> stop on these lawn mowing videos. And the old high grass, 
and it's disgusting, and it's gross, and you sit there and you watch it. You watch it all the way through because you want to see what it looks like at the end. You want to see what the restoration process looks like. It's grass. Who cares? It's going to look the same, but we, we care so much because we like that restoration process. Or we walk through a parking lot of a diner, and we see these old cars that are restored. Look, to restore those cars to greatness. These old muscle cars that got beaten down over the years and years and years of use and out in the sun and the rain and all the elements and now they're beautiful again. And we're like, wow, that is awesome. Our hearts love these types of things. Or the stories of a person that falls from grace or falls into addiction of some sort and we follow their story through rehab and all that stuff, and then they restore and they become back into the fellowship or whatever it might be. We, we rejoice over those things because our heart longs for stuff like that. We find joy in the restoration process. We find comfort in it because in the ugly, in the broken, in the crap, there's immense beauty and there's repurpose and there's hope. Our hearts long for that. Why? Because that's the gospel story. That's the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is restoration. And that's what we're going to look at today with, with Paul. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, um, sorry, the Colossians church, and we're going to have it up there, and we're just going to leave it up there for you guys the whole time because we're going to keep going back to it. But if you don't have a Bible, there is some under the pew. I did not get the, Bible, the page number. I was going to do that, but I forgot. So another reason why Adam's a great preacher and I'm just here filling in. Um, <laughs> so the, the verse will be up on the screen for you. And it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the restoration process. You have the before, you have the process, and then you have the after. Very simply laid out. So we're going to look at all three of those in this process. The before says we were alienated, hostile, evil deeds. If you look in Romans chapter 5, there's another very similar passage. That's why I love the Bible. It ties all together so great. It says, we were enemies. These are very, very descriptive words. It's not a, ah, you just weren't acquaintances with God. Ah, you were okay, but you just kind of, eh, towards God. No, it says, we are enemies. We are alienated, isolated, tossed aside. We are doing evil deeds. God. That is insane. That is the before. That is pretty bad. Pretty decrepit. Pretty nasty. Pretty ugly. Before picture. And we can look at that and go, well, that's because of my sinful nature. Which is true. What's, what's amazing is we don't have to teach children how to sin. You can go into my house and watch my two-year-old disobey all the time. I never taught her how to disobey. You know, she'll look at me dead in the eye, pretend not to do something, and then go right do it. We don't have to teach that. We do have to teach the good things. But 
Our sinful nature is there, and we don't have to be taught how to sin and disobey. And that goes back to chapter 3 of Genesis. The beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story of mankind with Adam and Eve. When they decided that they knew better than God. They said, we don't want to be under God's kingship. We want to be in charge. They disobeyed, trying to flip the natural order over. And what happened when they sinned? Sin entered the world. They were ripped apart from God. And mankind was ripped apart from God. They used to be in communion with God, joined with God and everything, and they were recited to run and hide in shame, just like any good person that gets caught stealing from the cookie jar. They hid in shame. That sinful nature was passed on to us, but we willingly choose to sin daily. And our plight as humanity stood like that for a long time. Fallen, sinful, hopeless, disgusting mess. But God didn't want to leave us in that state. God wanted to fix that problem. And the only way that God could is by sending his son. And we celebrate that on Christmas morning. So God sent his son. So we're in the restoration process here. God sent his son to come down and live in this hopeless world, in this sinful world, fully God yet fully man, fully able to sin, but chose not to. Jesus was able to do all that. He came born as a helpless baby, rose in wisdom and stature, continued to grow, and then was tempted by the devil himself. And he used the sword of the Spirit to fend off and win us, and using that against the adversary the devil, Satan. All through being perfect, keeping pure and blameless, only to be later betrayed, beaten, spit upon, mocked, thorns bashed into his head, beaten, mocked, I already said that, but all these things over and over whipped to a point of almost death. And then hung on a cross with nails through his hands and through his feet. Slowly suffocating to death. But none of those things killed him. His last words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus took on all the sins all my sins, all your sins, all the sins of the world. And in that moment, he was ripped apart from God, just like Adam and Eve were. We've never experienced that. We were born sinful. So we've never felt that ripping apart from God. Jesus felt it at his innermost fiber of being, and you know what it did? It killed him, Jesus. Where Adam and Eve hid in shame, Jesus couldn't stand God not being able to look at him and being in that sinful state. But praise to God that the story doesn't end there. 
he bursts forth out of that grave, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering all of our failures. And then appearing to many to prove that he actually did raise and doing a lot of awesome things before he ascended to heaven. But he rose from the dead because death could not contain him because he was perfect. Yet he took on our sin. And that is the restoration process. It's that grace that comes from Jesus' blood that it says there, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In his death and then resurrection comes grace. We like to use church words. Um, being a youth guy, I like trying to you know, poke, poke children and figure out what they think. Um, you know, church, church words. So this was a couple years ago uh, at a different church where I was a youth pastor at, and um, I spent about five weeks asking the same question, what is grace? We use it all the time, but what is grace? What is grace? And I would pull up scripture and pull up verses, more likely to understand it. And about four or five weeks into this what is grace series, this girl came bursting in the door on a Wednesday night, and she said, I figured it out. And I was like, okay, what is grace? And she said, you know how you said we've been ripped apart from God? I said, yeah. She goes, grace is the duct tape that puts us back together. And I was like, you digging deep into it? There, there's some fallacies in it. That's fine. But duct tape fixes everything. Duct tape of faith. That is awesome. I got excited. This was several years ago, and I still think about that. It is the duct tape, the blood of Jesus Christ, putting us back together in right standing with Jesus Christ. Sixth grader was telling me this. Wow. Awesome. Okay, so that is that process. We knew the before state. The process is grace because Jesus came and lived perfectly and died to give us that grace that now we are able to be bonded back together with him, with that magical duct tape, with that blood duct tape, with whatever you want to image it as. We are now rebonded back with Christ in our end state above reproach. Those three things are amazing to see what we came from, right? Alienated, isolated, enemies, evil in word and deed to holy, blameless, above reproach all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to be thankful for. That's what our hope is in, that we are no longer over here, separated from God, but we've been bonded back together with him and we're holy, blameless, and above reproach. So why are we able to see all these things around us, all of these restoration stories, yet we fail to see it in ourselves? This amazing restoration story. I think there's a, a couple reasons, and I'm going to point out some fallacies in them. The first being that maybe I wasn't that bad as a kid. Maybe I got saved at an early age, so I wasn't really that bad, so my restoration story isn't that great. The first fallacy is, it says you're an enemy of God. The Bible says you were an enemy. You weren't just there. You weren't just a part of it. You were an active participant fighting against God, no matter what age you were. 
And the second fallacy, the more important one, is by saying that, this what he did on that cross when he came to earth and he had his earthly restoration process for us is completely nullified when you say, well, I wasn't that bad. No, you were an enemy and you were made holy and blameless above reproach before God. Or the second one being, oh, well, I still have a few things to fix. You know, I still have this that I struggle with. I still have this kind of thing that once I get that under wraps, then maybe the first fallacy in that is you have anything to do with your salvation. I can't do nothing. It's already been done. And the second one is the exact same one as the second one from before. It downplays what Christ did on the cross, thinking I can do something about it. I would like to be able to do something about it, but it's already been done. We don't have to. That should be our hope. That should be our scream from the mountaintop story. I was an enemy. Now I'm a child. Where it talks about in Scripture, a child, heirs to the throne. Lots of great things besides just blameless and um, pure and uh, righteous. We have a lot of imagery of what we became from what we started as. If you've never heard that before, the before state, and we have hope. In this season of hope, people are looking for it all around. They get excited. You know, the, the Advent season is hopeful for people, and it can also be sad, but they're looking for something more. We live in a dark, dark world. We should be able to shine that hope because we know the process. We know what we're now. Hope abounds because we have hope in the restoration process because we have hope in the restorer. And we have hope in Jesus Christ who made all that possible. We have the greatest restorer who loves us immensely, who didn't take, who definitely could have, could have said, you guys stink. I don't want to come save you. Jesus could have done that multiple times throughout his ministry on earth, throughout before time. He could have said, nope, I'm out, deuces. But he didn't. He continually chose me. He continually chose you. So what is our response to that? We're lights in this dark world. We can have that hope in this dark world that others can see and we can tell of our restoration process about it. We push it aside. We say, I don't know enough. I don't know how to share this. You do know how to share. I was broken. Now I'm not. I was an enemy. Now I'm a child. We have hope in the, re the restoration because we have hope in the restorer. And our hope in the restorer is our hope in Jesus Christ. And that starts as earthly ministry on what we celebrate on Christmas morning. So when you're getting up on Christmas morning, think of that hope that we have, that immense, amazing hope. Jesus didn't leave us in our sinful state, but he restored us to glory, blameless, above reproach, holy. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for
how amazing of a story this is. It starts back at the beginning of time when Adam and Eve sinned, when they were ripped apart from you, but you chose to love us anyway. And that is amazing. The story of the one true living God that came and lived and breathed as us, knew what life was like to be us, yet chose to do it anyway. Help us see that hope in our everyday lives and help us see that hope and be able to share that hope with others. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'd like.